So we're back in the book of Hebrews, but even as we begin to dive back into it, it becomes clear that it, uh, it's helpful for us to have a review of what covenant theology is. Uh, and it's not a, a narrow band of theology. Uh, it's, it's not, uh, you know, getting down in the weeds with, with some more uh, difficult and complicated part of our theology. It's, it's the outline of our entire theology. Uh, every, every tradition, Christian tradition, even if they aren't uh, intentional about it, has some system by which they read and understand the Scripture. Uh, we've talked about the importance of, of a, a good system of theology uh, helping us to read Scripture well, and a, a good system being both internally and externally consistent, not contradicting itself or contradicting the world that we live in. And so, uh, in our uh, tradition, which goes back to, to Scotland and ultimately to Geneva uh, and John Calvin, and prior to Calvin, really, what Calvin and the other reformers are doing is recovering uh, the, the understanding of the Scripture that belonged to the early church. Uh, Calvin was a, uh, today we would call him a patristics scholar. Uh, he was a man who knew the church fathers intimately. He had read their, their works and, and in many respects gave every indication of having, having And so what Calvin was able to do in the Reformation is to say to the Catholic Church, you have not only departed from God's Word, you've even departed from the early church and how they understood God's Word. And so, uh, so that's, that's the tradition that we belong to. So uh, we're going to do uh, come back and finish up with covenant theology today. As I did last week, I'm going to give a running start and review very quickly where we've been the last, I think, two weeks that we've been doing this. And then uh, we've got one covenant left to cover today, and that's the Mosaic Covenant. We want to talk about not only what that covenant is and how it functioned, but how that covenant fits into uh, the, the scheme of covenant theology. So let me pray, and we will get started today. Father, thank you so much for time together, considering your word, considering how it is that you've revealed yourself progressively throughout history. Uh, you've revealed your very character to us, not only in creation, uh, not only even in our own creation, being made in the image of God and the conscience that we, we have, all of us, both in and not in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have also revealed yourself in Jesus Christ by your spirit through the prophets, uh, Father, and to us today in your word, we, we give thanks that you have told us what is true about who we are and what we need and what you have done to meet that need. We give thanks for all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, a couple of notes before we begin. First of all, for those who have been with us a while, we, uh, we are now the church that had a, uh, a Benedictine bear, uh, a church that had a disco ball, and now we are a church that has a billiard room. Thank you, J.D. I'd not heard it called the billiard room yet, uh, but, uh, but that's going to stick, I promise. Uh, it's the billiard room from now on. Um, we, uh, we do have a podcast. For those of you who have been listening, uh, you may have noticed that the last two weeks we've not had a podcast. Two weeks ago, uh, I was not feeling well. We ended up not recording that week. 
And then this last week I had some travel that came up that I had to, to do, so we didn't record this last week either. But we are intending to get back to what we're doing on the podcast this spring is each episode we take a, uh, one of the hymns that we sing. Uh, and we spend some time talking about the hymn writer, uh, circumstances in which the hymn was written, if we know those things, the tune to which we sing it, but then we spend most of our time walking through the text of that hymn. Uh, and it's not just a general curiosity thing. Uh, it's really what motivates us is most of us have never heard a lesson or read a book about any of the hymns we sing. Most of us do not spend time in, during the week just reading through hymns and thinking about them. Uh, and so what that means is you come in here, and a hymn is not to entertain you, and it's not to entertain one another. A hymn is a means by which all of us in unison worship God. And so what that means is as we sing, we should understand what we're singing. Uh, we, we should mean what we're singing and yet there are obstacles for us in that. The fact that, again, we, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it uh, any other time during the week. So while we're in the midst of singing, we might be trying to pay attention and see what it is we're singing. Uh, if you are not familiar with the, the tune, you might be busy following the notes, and you, you really don't have the time and bandwidth in that moment to think deeply at all about the words that you're saying. Uh, on top of that, we admit these hymns, the best of them, might have been written 300 years ago. And so there are turns of phrase and the use of vocabulary in the hymns that isn't always uh, common to how we talk today uh, or think. So what we want to do on the podcast, we can't possibly do this with every single hymn we sing, certainly not this spring, but we just want to take some time and go through and slow down and look at some of these hymns in particular uh, and talk about what it is that that hymn is saying and what we're saying then when we sing that hymn. So I hope you'll tune in, and uh, for those who have been, I apologize that we've not had an episode the last couple of weeks. Um, the other thing before I start is uh, I've, I've recommended this book, but I wanted to bring it in so you could see it. Uh, on the subject of covenant theology, if, if this is all still very new to you, uh, if maybe you're tracking, but between Sundays you couldn't explain it to somebody else, uh, and you really just need a way to sit down and think carefully and at your own pace about this, Covenants Made Simple is the name of the book. Uh, the author is Jonty Rhodes, J-O-N-T-Y, and then Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, Jonty Rhodes, Covenants Made Simple. Uh, first published in the UK under the bizarre title, The Ark of the Covenant. Uh, very strange title for this book. Uh, in fact, he barely touches on the Noahic Covenant, so it makes it especially strange that they would have called it that uh, when it came to America. Some, some editor, publisher somewhere recognized that uh, it would benefit from a better title. Covenants Made Simple. I also want you to understand what a gold mine this is. Uh, I was not raised in covenant theology. When I was introduced to covenant theology, it was by friends who were themselves coming to an awareness of it and an understanding of it. And so uh, I'm, I'm what you would call an autodidact, a self-taught uh, person when it comes to covenant theology. I went looking for years for a book that would introduce covenant theology, and I couldn't find one. 
you would think that a book titled Introducing Covenant Theology, uh, like Michael Horton's book, would be an excellent way to, to come to understand covenant theology. And for all of the strengths of that book, introducing somebody to covenant theology is not one of them. Another strange title for a book. It's not very good at what the title says. Excellent for other things, right? Uh, the book most often recommended by Reformed people, I discovered, was recommended by Presbyterians who'd always been Presbyterians. Uh, and so it turns out that was not a great book either. That's Christ of the Covenants by O. Palmer Robertson. And I want to be clear, fantastic book, just not a great book to introduce someone to covenant theology. Uh, and I was sitting with the, the president of one of our seminaries at dinner one night, and I said, man, I have been for years looking for a book that I can hand to somebody who's never had covenant theology explained to them, and it will very simply and consistently walk them through covenant theology. And he said, I've got one for you. Covenant's made simple. And uh, I went out and bought it that week and read it, and it was fantastic. So if you don't have this book, uh, this, is, this is on a, for me personally, on a short list of books every Christian family should have in their home library. And that, it is really genuinely a fairly short list, right? Uh, but this book is on it. And so I would encourage you, if you've not read this book, to consider buying it and reading it. Covenant's made simple. Okay. And then also this whiteboard today, those of you who've been with us know that uh, I'm not a whiteboard person usually when I teach, uh, but, uh, but this morning we're going to have to use the whiteboard in order to, to hold everything together. Uh, I want to apologize now to those who are excited about the whiteboard because there's a good chance it's not coming back out for many, many weeks uh, after this. But, yes, Billy. Yes, yes. Um, oh, and some have asked about, like, diagrams and drawings and things. Th there's some limited stuff, Colleen, in this book. And what is there is really helpful. We, uh, years ago, some of us did, uh, we were studying a little book, uh, and it was full of, of graphs. And we, we all agreed they were useless. We, we couldn't understand them at all. Instead of helping us understand things, they just confused us. Um, and, I mean, so thoroughly that to this day we, we enjoy a good laugh whenever we think about it. Okay, let's talk about covenant theology. And I have to think very carefully, and I know even this is not going to be super easy to see, so I'm going to do my best to make it uh, so that everyone can see it. Uh, we've got... What's that? I said by moving it further away. Well, there's, there's people on the outsides, right? I could move it right up there to the end of your row if you like, Graham. Okay. Uh, we've talked about the fact that there are really kind of three overarching covenants that capture the entire thing. Covenant. Uh, it's the covenant that the, the persons of the Trinity made with one another uh, to accomplish redemption to do everything that has happened in the world is happening and that God has promised will happen. Uh, that's got different names. It's called the Eternal Covenant uh, in the Westminster Confession, for example. Uh, most of us refer to it as the Covenant of Redemption. Uh, those, those are the two most common titles that you'll hear for that covenant. That covenant is, as you would expect, being among the three persons of the Trinity, a temporal 
the covenant stands outside of time. We don't have language that allows us to talk about it that way consistently. So we talk about it in the past, right? Uh, that, that it's a covenant that the triune God made with himself before he created, before time began. Uh, but that being said, the moment of that covenant is always now. God in himself is always in the moment of that covenant, because there is no moment. It's ah-temporal. It is itself eternal. So when we call it the eternal covenant, we're not, call, we're not saying merely that it never ends. We're saying that it is a covenant that stands outside of time and therefore to God is always present. Uh, that's, that might sound like a theological nicety, but do you recognize what, what infinite hope is available to us in that truth. We, we use Scripture, uses language, and therefore we use language of God remembering and God not forgetting, and we think the, the, in terms of how that works for us. Something happens or something is promised. There's a moment at which that promise is issued or that event happens, and we don't want to forget it, and so we have to remember it. Uh, and Scripture will say, you know, set up an Ebenezer, pile up stones, do something to commemorate this thing so that it's never forgotten, not only by you, but by subsequent generations. And we have to remember. And then God says to us, I am a God who remembers. I never forget. And we imagine that for God there's this moment somewhere deep in his past where he made some promise, and he's got to somehow remember that promise and not forget it. But the reality is that in the eternal covenant, in the covenant of redemption, God's promise is not something that he remembers as though he might forget it. It is always now for him. We can't entirely wrap our brains around that, but to the degree to which we can, it ought to be a comfort to us. Our God does not even have to remember. You don't even have to rely on the character of God in as much as he's all-knowing or all-present. Those are all true things, and, and in other ways are you know, of vast importance. But when it comes to asking the question, will God keep His promises? The question of whether or not He will remember them is what we call concessive language. It's God speaking to us in a way that makes sense to us, but the reality for God is that it's not something he has to remember. It's always now for him. That's the covenant of redemption. And it's the overarching covenant in which everything else unfolds. Now, the two other covenants are the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. We've talked about these. The covenant of works was established with Adam in the garden. Uh, it can also be referred to as the covenant of creation or the covenant of life or there's the Adamic covenant or the Edenic covenant. These are all just names for the same covenant. The covenant that God made with Adam in the garden, in that covenant, he explicitly threatened death if Adam would not obey. By implication, life if he would obey. So that's the covenant of works. And the covenant of works... As you know, that's a C-O-W, probably too small for people in the back to read. The covenant of works continues throughout redemptive history. 
But that covenant of works, uh, every single human being who has ever lived, is living now, or will live, is in the covenant of works. But there's two possible ways for, for you to be a member of that covenant. You can be a member of that covenant under the curse. So remember when Adam sinned, he broke that covenant and he brought the curse of that covenant upon himself. Unfortunately, at least from a certain perspective, he was, what he did, he did for himself and for all of his offspring. That's us. So all of us are under that covenant curse. If you continue in that covenant curse, remember I said uh, last week that the covenant of works is still in effect. Just because Adam broke it didn't mean it went away. So in what sense is it still in effect? It's still in effect because it is, for lack of a better word, I'm going to say unresolved. In other words, you are under that curse and you will suffer the full weight of the curse of the covenant for eternity. So the covenant of works is still in effect for you. It condemns you. Yes, every single person who spends an eternity in hell will have personal sin that they are being judged for, that, that the wrath of God is falling upon them for. But that personal sin in the big picture only justifies God. That personal sin is the proof that they were, in fact, sons and daughters of Adam and under the curse. There's another way, though, to be related to the covenant of works today, and that is that someone else on your behalf fulfilled the covenant of works. And they did that by two particular things. They removed the curse that we are justly under, and they provided the righteousness that that covenant demanded. Remember, eternal life for perfect obedience. God has done this in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you are trusting in Christ, if you believe the message that you are under Adam and therefore justly condemned for eternity and that you are without any hope of salvation or in Jesus Christ and repentance of your sins, then you are related to the covenant of works according to the covenant of grace. So the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works... God's promise to his people that he will redeem them by a Savior. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. And the redemptive work he accomplishes is he removes the curse of the covenant of works and he provides the righteousness that it requires. So do you see Adam the curse? Christ, who Paul refers to in two of his letters as the second Adam or the last Adam, Christ comes and does what Adam was supposed to do but failed to do. And in so doing, then he comes into all of the promises of the covenant of works. 
And like Adam, who was our representative in his work, now Christ is our representative in his. So that all that Christ gains for himself in the keeping of the covenant of works, he gains for us as well who are putting our faith and trust in Him and repenting of our sins. So you see, we belong to the covenant of grace, but that covenant itself is restoring us to the promises of the covenant of works. So the covenant of works is actually still in effect for those of us who are in Christ, not as a condemnation, but as the promise of eternal life. Liz. Yeah, so the, uh, the definition that O. Palmer Robertson gives uh, a, a covenant as a bond made in blood, and the question is kind of how that relates to all of this. Um, I, I want to give two answers that, that, if you don't listen carefully, might sound contradictory. Blood as an image is central and vital in the work that God is doing in history. And we can trace that image all the way up to the point where it's no longer an image, it's the actual blood of Christ. And that's central in a, in a covenantal context, a covenant theology, redemptive historical context. Having said that, I'm not a fan of O. Palmer Robertson's definition. Um, it, it just doesn't seem to cohere in every circumstance. What theologians have tried to do, and Bible scholars with covenant theology, is that when, when God makes the covenant with Abraham in particular, uh, he actually, God uses a structure for that covenant that would have been very familiar to Abraham. We find identical covenants, identical except for the parties involved and the, and the particular nature of the promises that are being made, but in terms of structure, we find the same covenants being made in other ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures, uh, other ancient Near Eastern people. Uh, and so if you start reading really deeply in this, uh, they refer to them as suzerain vassal treaties. Uh, and it describes what, what, a, what a, a covenant does is it defines a relationship, right? Uh, and so... Uh, what covenant theologians have tried to do is give definition to that term, covenant. And when O. Palmer Robertson gives definition to it, he includes in his definition uh, a, a bond made in blood. Uh, and I, there are times that's helpful, and there are times it's less helpful, I find. And so, uh, that said, if we were to trace blood through this, this scheme, uh, it's absolutely at the heart of the scheme, Graham. Yeah, is, is the shedding of Christ's blood itself symbolic, or is it necessary? Because, of course, he could have been 
Yes. A human being can die without blood being shed. Yeah, that's right. Uh, a human being can die without blood being shed. Uh, and, and there's so many layers to that question and how we would answer it. Uh, and ultimately, though, the answer over and over again is no. He, he couldn't have died without shedding blood. Of course, that, that really gets to the author of Hebrews, doesn't it? The author of Hebrews is going to talk about the shed blood of Christ as covering sin. He's going to contrast it to uh, the blood of bulls and goats, which was symbolic, and imply that the blood of Christ is not merely symbolic. Uh, it actually accomplishes something, and that something is absolutely necessary for our salvation. And he will describe Christ taking that blood into the heavenly temple, of course, all of this itself is language we have to unpack, right? But taking it into the heavenly temple and applying it to the altar. He is both high priest and sacrifice. Um, and so, uh, probably, we, would, we may get an entire lesson just on that, right? Because the author of Hebrews uh, addresses that really clearly, and it's obviously important to uh, his theology, his understanding of Christ and his work. So, Jen. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there, there are different kinds of relationships, right? You can have uh, relationships, covenants, if you will, contracts between equals, or you can have them between a greater party and a lesser party. Uh, and obviously, uh, the, the covenants are, are between greater party and lesser party, creator and created, right? Uh, or creature. Okay, we, uh, we're going to move on. Now, uh, this... If you are in the covenant of works in an unresolved state, then your end is damnation, eternal judgment. If you are in the covenant of grace, your end is salvation. This covenant of grace unfolds throughout history in a series of covenants that all belong to the covenant of grace. And so, explicit covenants, the first and greatest is Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant. Uh, we've talked about this one in detail. We're not going to revisit all of that this morning, but again, you can find it in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. Uh, these are the three places where the covenant's promised, it's cut, and a sign of that covenant is given. And then, as we've discussed, we know this is still in effect because Paul is at great pains to make sure we understand that if you are in Christ, you are a child of Abraham, and therefore his offspring, and therefore inheritors of the promises made to Abraham. Right? So the Abrahamic covenant's still in effect. Uh, we've talked about the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant also still in effect. Uh, how do we know that that's still in effect? Well, what was the covenant promise? The covenant promise made to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, was that his, his own offspring, his own son, would sit on the throne forever. 
And as that, that Davidic promise is unpacked, you can read it in the Psalms as David himself understands that promise and, and in, in the Psalms reflects the, the reality and the blessing of the promise that God made to him. The New Testament picks up on this. It's the son of David. That's why Christ is the son of David. That title is, is his, his right as king, right? He is the son of David. It's not just God promised to a man, David, he would have a son who would be the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, therefore he's the son promised to David. David had particular promises with respect to his son, and that is that he would be king forever, and his kingdom and his rule would have no end. That's how we know the Davidic covenant is still in effect, because Christ is that king, and his kingdom is never-ending. For eternity... The kingdom of God is the Davidic kingdom, and Christ is the Davidic king. Then we have, and this, this finally brings us up to today, today's topic. We have, um, <clears throat> okay, so what I'm going to do is flip this over and use the back, and what I do belongs between these brackets. Does that make sense? It's yet another temporal expression of this covenant of grace, okay? And I'm just going to try and figure out now how to flip this over. Ta-da! Oh, I guess I could have just turned it around. I'm a product of East Tennessee State University, folks. Okay. And so, what we have lastly is two covenants that, uh, that work together, that, that unfold throughout the course of history One is the Mosaic Covenant, and the other is the New Covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant is what we want to spend the rest of our time on today, and which I've clearly optimistically, over-optimistically assumed we would finish, is Exodus chapters 19 through 24, right? So that's, that's the passage of Scripture we want to go to when we're ready. In Jeremiah 31... So Exodus 19 through 24, Jeremiah 31, we have the New Covenant. It's not the only place in Scripture we find reference, but this is the classic text we go to, Jeremiah 31, 31. Between these two covenants are continuities... and discontinuities. Don't worry, we're going to talk about it. This, this right here is really what it all comes down to for us in the book of Hebrews, because this is what the author of Hebrews is all about. The author of Hebrews is saying to a group of people who know this covenant and are, for, for perhaps reasons of persecution... Uh, or, or just we, we're more comfortable with what we know, 
uh, or because of their understanding of the fact that in history the people of God did not keep the law under Moses and therefore went off into exile. So now when Christ comes and they hear Paul saying, you don't have to do this, they're very uncomfortable with that and determined not to easily let it go. So there's this whole transitional period in the first century after Christ's ascension where the church is wrestling, trying to understand what does the person and work of Christ mean for the Mosaic covenant and the law. That's the context. This this truth right here is the context in which Paul is working, and he's having to say, circumcision is not necessary anymore. And the people there are among the Jews in the church, those saying, uh, over my dead body, is it not in effect anymore? If you don't follow the law of Moses, you're not a Christian, right? And there's this debate that's happening and unfolding. And so the Mosaic covenant is what we would call, maybe in in using different language, it's the administration of of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. It's the administration of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. As such, the New Testament tells us, it was intended by God as a tutor to His people. His people were a people under age. They were elementary students, if you will, And God is, in ways that will communicate clearly to them, revealing who He is and what He's doing in redemption. As such, the Mosaic Covenant is full of Christological imagery. It is shot through with with requirements that, when understood properly, point you to the Messiah. So that there is, for example, in this system of the law, the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, blood is shed to cover the sins of the people. Right? There, when when a, uh, a Jewish person would bring his sacrifice to the temple, he would come up to the, the last point he was allowed to go to, not being a Levite. And it, the priest would meet him there and would take the sacrifice, and the the man would put his hands on the head of the sacrifice, and ceremonially, his guilt was transferred to the sacrifice, which then lost its life in judgment for the sins that it had received, that had been transferred to it. I mean, Christ is just all through the Mosaic law, and that's... covenant is unique among expressions of the covenant of grace because it it comes to an end. The Abrahamic covenant doesn't end. The Davidic covenant doesn't end. The new covenant doesn't end. But the Mosaic covenant ends. And that's what the author of Hebrews is at pains to make his readers understand. You can't go back to Moses. There is nothing there for you. It's a dead letter. It's finished. The Mosaic Covenant is no longer in effect. It had an intended purpose. It accomplished its purpose, and it is no longer of any good to you. If you go back to Moses, the author of Hebrews says, you cannot have Christ. 
So the Mosaic Covenant comes to an end, or maybe a better way to think of it is that the Mosaic Covenant is transformed into the New Covenant. Because the, the Mosaic Covenant is the administration of the covenant of grace, and, and it's transformed into the new covenant, or perhaps replaced by the new covenant. I, I don't think either of those are wrong words. They just help us wrap our heads around what's happening. Because of this, there are things that are carried over from the Mosaic covenant into the new. Those are continuities. practical expression or, or, or way to think about this is if we're here, why would we ever bother reading about this? What good is this to us today? The answer to that question is found in the continuities, the things that have not changed. But there are some things that have changed and radically. And those are the discontinuities. Now, the difference, one of the key differences between us and, a, and another system of theology that, frankly, most evangelicals are raised in, whether they know it or not, it's called dispensationalism. The difference, one of the key differences from an interpretive perspective between us and the dispensationalist is the dispensationalist holds to radical discontinuity. There was a radical break, an almost uh, complete break, because they believe that this is not two administrations of the covenant of grace. They believe this is the administration of covenant faithfulness for the Jewish people, and this is the administration of the covenant of grace for Gentile people. So that these two run concurrently. Rather than this being the Old Testament, going to do this, understand this, by, by recognizing radical discontinuity. Now, granted, the person and work of Christ does. It, it would be fair to speak of it as radically changing the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, the author of Hebrews doesn't talk about the Mosaic Covenant transitioning or, uh, or being uh, you know, transmogrified uh, into... Um, I've got one reaction. Only one of you read how Calvin and Hobbes growing up. Um, he, he says it's done. It's passing away. It's finished. Right? So to, to describe the, the change that comes between the Mosaic and the New as, as a radical discontinuity, uh, the, the terms are relative here. Uh, we would gladly say there's a radical discontinuity. It's just that dispensationalism is too radical, right? Uh, and, and what we mean by too radical is they, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are beautiful, necessary, God-intended continuities between these things. 
And those are, are important continuities for us to recognize. So we've talked about the, the new covenant, but we, I, I want to talk about both of these now uh, in light of one another. Let me pause then. Questions? Billy. Yeah. Um, yes, Christ fulfills the Mosaic Covenant, those images. All of it points to Him, and when He comes, so the language of the author of Hebrews, again, is shadow and substance. Uh, those, those things in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, are the shadow of things to come. Christ is the thing. It's, he's the substance. It's as if the cross is casting a shadow back through history, and the Mosaic Covenant is that shadow. And just like with a shadow, sometimes you can look at a shadow, and just seeing the shadow, you can get some, albeit warped, sense of the shape of the thing. You can anticipate the thing casting the shadow if all you can see is its shadow. But the thing itself is, is what matters, Right? We don't fall in love with the shadow. We don't pursue the shadow. If the shadow is all we've got, we're deeply thankful for it. But when we get the substance, the thing that casts the shadow, that's what matters. That's what we desire, right? Uh, and so, yes, Christ comes as the substance. Uh, that is the thing anticipated by the Mosaic Covenant. So, let's talk about the law in the Mosaic Covenant. This is the second question that Billy asked. Uh, and the distinctions that we make here are long-held distinctions. Uh, Calvin is the one who gave us the language of the first, second, and third use of the law. So there's two different ways we want to talk about and think about the law. What, what is the law good for? How is it used by God? And the other is, how is it to be comprehended itself? The Mosaic law. In the Mosaic law we find three aspects. Now, I want to be clear, but these three aspects that we're going to talk about are not three groups of law. It sometimes breaks out that way, but not always. It's not that we can take any of the laws in the law of Moses, and there are over 600 distinct laws in the law of Moses. It's not that we can take any one of them and put it in one of these three buckets. Right? Sometimes they are more this than that, but all of them, for example, one, one of the, the three aspects of the Mosaic Law is it reveals the character of God. We call that aspect the moral law. The moral law, because it reveals the character of God, is eternal. It existed before the Mosaic Law. It exists now that the Mosaic Law is ended, abrogated, and it will exist into eternity because the character of God that it reveals is eternally true. So the moral law didn't come into existence with the Ten Commandments. 
You even see this literally in some ways. There, you know, it was murder in Genesis 4 when Cain killed Abel. Uh, even the people of Israel, before Moses ever came down from the mountain with the law, were forbidden from gathering manna on the Sabbath. There was already a Sabbath law in effect before the, the law of Moses ever came down from the mountain. So there's a moral law, right? There are also aspects of the Mosaic law that govern their ceremonies. That is how they worship God. And there are civil laws, because remember, Israel is a theocracy. God is king in Israel. This is why God refers to the human kings in Israel as my king. It's not the way we would say my king. If you were uh, a, a British citizen and you said my king, you would be talking about the king to whom you were subject. But when God speaks of Saul or David or Solomon or Rehoboam, etc., and says, my king, he means my regent, the one I have placed on the throne who rules in my absence, rules on my behalf. Israel never had a true king in that respect other than God. That's why in our reading recently uh, in 1 Samuel, uh, God says to Samuel, don't worry, it's not you they've rejected, it's me in demanding a human king. I am their king, but they've insisted that they get a king like all the other nations. I'm the one they've rejected, Samuel, not you. So, we've got these three aspects of the law. Civil, ceremonial, moral. Yes? Yes, yeah. The moral law would be an excellent example of a continuity between the Mosaic law and the new, or Mosaic covenant and the new covenant. One of those things that hasn't changed, right? Um, the civil law, because Israel was a theocracy, we've talked about this before, in a true monarchy, where does the law come from? The king. The king in a true monarchy, a pure monarchy, the king determines the law. And he answers to no one. God is king over Israel. And he has given them the law by which they will live. And no one has the freedom or liberty to add or subtract from that law. But God who is king in Israel. This is how you will be ruled. That's the civil law. And one of the easiest ways to see an expression of that civil law. Is that uh, being a theocracy. The government carried out spiritual discipline. So when someone sinned, the responsibility for bringing against them the, uh, the consequences of that sin that God has commanded in the law of Moses, that responsibility lies with the government, with the king, and those who represent him. Israel, as a theocracy, ceased to exist. And no theocracy exists today in the world except the church. And so the civil law is not in effect anymore and has not been in effect since the theocracy of Israel in the Old Testament ceased to exist. The modern nation state of Israel, though obviously a part of God's plan because it exists, right? 
Nothing happens apart from God's sovereign providence. But it, it is not a fulfillment of prophecy and a reestablishment of the theocracy. Modern Israel is not that. So, uh, the civil law is ended. And it went away with Israel's autonomy. When Israel ceased to be an autonomous nation, they ceased to be a theocracy, and therefore under the law of God, in, in a civil sense. In other words, if someone broke the law, Israel no longer had the right, if the death penalty was required, to execute them. That's actually what you see in the gospel accounts, right? The Jewish leadership desperately wants to kill Jesus, but they do not have the authority to do so. They must get it from Rome. So the civil law is gone. The ceremonial law is, are those laws that told Israel how to worship God. What it looked like to remain ritualistically pure, and then what it looked like to gain that purity. That's effectively what's happening. They're sinners. In order to come into the presence of God and to be atoned, to be restored in fellowship to God, there was a sacrificial system that had to be observed. Their sin created that requirement. Even having gone through everything properly and been atoned, uh, they, they still are in need of, of continuing, right? If, if, theoretically, they could be atoned and never sin again, what would it look like to never sin again, right? The, the moral law answers that question, and the ceremonial law tells them how to, be, how to get atonement and how to keep atonement, if you will, right? Uh, it's a never-ending series of sacrifices because, as the author of Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats never actually atoned for sin. It was symbolic of the blood that's required, which is Jesus Christ. So, long-winded answer to your question, and we're over our time. Um, so, we'll pick up here next week, and maybe by the end of it, we will, uh, we'll get into the, the text of Hebrews. A couple of things really quickly. If you have children, please don't dilly-dally when I release you. If you would quickly move down to the children's ministry uh, for those of you who have children who are not set free to roam, uh, like the Serengeti, uh, but have to be picked up, if you would make your way down there without undue delay. Uh, tonight, uh, our sermon text is Philemon. We're going to do a three-week series in Philemon. And, uh, and so, as promised, when I did this with Genesis not too long ago, on the website this week, you will find a handout that has uh, all kinds of information on the book of Philemon uh, kind of what we would call a survey or an introduction to Philemon, uh, as well as a study guide for Philemon. And so that's available there if you want it. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you so much today for your word. Uh, we thank you for uh, the promise of salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, for his faithfulness in doing all that's required to meet the demands of that covenant. Uh, Father, we thank you for the glorious truth that your own promise is made to yourself, that you, Father, Son, and Spirit have promised to one another, covenanted together to do this work, and that even that act of promising is always now to you, Father, and so our salvation is secure. Uh, we give thanks and praise and, and pray that you would build us up continually, Father. Feed us on Christ, 
until he comes again, that we would be found ready when he does. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.